from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department will look for help from industry to plan cyber strategy for the next 25 years. A request for information from the Office of the Undersecretary of Research and Engineering calls for a, quote, roadmap of science and technology activities. FedScoop reports the RFI says the vendor will work with the Office of the Pentagon CIO, the service secretaries, the leaders of Cyber Command, the Defense Information Systems Agency, the Defense Digital Service, and other top DOD leaders. Army Contracting Command will manage an other Transaction Authority contract for the Defense Department and the Department of Health and Human Services to move COVID-19 treatments to manufacturing. The request for proposal says the government can award no-bid contracts if a treatment's early phases work. NextGov reports that if the prototypes work, the first batch of 100,000 treatments have to, has to be ready by December 31st. Three components of the Department of Homeland Security would get some budget help under the latest coronavirus relief proposal from Senate Republicans. Customs and Border Protection would get $1.6 billion to cover fee shortfalls. The Transportation Security Administration would get $208 million for cleaning and social distancing technology. GovExec reports the Citizenship and Immigration Service would get a $1.2 billion loan to prevent furloughs. General Services Administration is preparing to sell more than half a billion dollars worth of property. The agency is looking for brokers to turn around the real estate it doesn't need anymore fast. Adam Bodner is the executive director of the Public Buildings Reform Board. Adam, welcome back. Thanks for coming on the program. Sounds like you and your colleagues are making progress since you were here back in January. What's been happening since then? We are, and thank you very much for having me and asking the board to participate. We, uh, since we spoke in January, we, um, we submitted, had uh, OMB approved our recommendations of the properties for disposal, and that started the clock ticking, if you will. Agencies then uh, submitted all of their property information to GSA, and GSA now has been doing its due diligence, sort of getting the properties ready for sale. And we've been uh, working with those agencies and GSA on uh, all the administrative matters, you know, sort of behind the scenes, if you will, to get all these all these things ready to go. What's the process? You talked about it a little bit in January, but I'd like to explore it more that you and your colleagues undertake to recommend that this piece or that piece is something that the government either should keep or is okay to get rid of. Right. Well, there, there was a series of data calls subsequent to the FASTA uh, Act being, uh, being signed and, and the board um, being uh, stood up or established. And so, so agencies have been working on um, properties for disposal for quite some time, and there were there were many that were sort of uh, kind of ready to go or definitely unneeded, and, and those were the ones we focused on for this first round. What will this look um, like from uh, from the sales perspective? This is going to be pretty much uh, straight broker recruitment, and look like a traditional real estate sale, or is there something different involved here because it's a federal government asset? Well, it's it's a little bit of both. That's a, that's a great question. One of the when we first uh, made these recommendations, we were envisioning that the the government would hire a number of brokers and sell all the properties individually. And we sort of pivoted from that, um, largely based on the pandemic, to to seeking to do a portfolio sale 
uh, yet still enabling individual properties to be sold. So, so it's it's definitely a change of of, um, of mindset, uh, and we are envisioning the brokers to be hired, or, or sort of one firm to then come on board and um, and uh, work with us, partner with us, uh, represent us, if you will, to the to the market, and then conduct the sale, you know, with us. Um, and that, go ahead. No, please continue. Well, so so that's not that that is uh it's it's I think it's different for the normal property disposal process, but GSA it's uh it's very similar to how they run their big leasing procurements, where and they use brokers to sort of partner with the the government folks and run these and figure out these complicated transactions, and we're trying to mirror that strategy uh, with the sales process. Strikes me that it makes sense to not reinvent the wheel to create an entirely new process to do a very similar type of transaction, Adam. Um, what what's the scope of this long term? What when your board completes its work at whatever point that is, are we looking at 50 properties, 100 properties? Is there any way to even predict? There are about a dozen this time around, but I wonder what this looks like when you, when you folks decide that you're finished or whenever your your mandate tells you you're done thank you yeah exactly there's there's probably um there's probably limitless properties out there once you get into um and not even notwithstanding the pandemic but but um, agency consolidations and relocations and uh shifting space needs you could sort of keep going um and and i think the intent of the legislation was clearly for the proceeds from the sale of one round to generate projects for the next round, and so that you can see that that um, going on in the future, the the projects get harder and more complicated, maybe more expensive to uh, to relocate the agencies. You know, this first round of the properties were mostly vacant, so we didn't have that huge upfront cost requirement that subsequent rounds will do. But we definitely see see that this has potential to continue even after the life. You kind of indicated the answer to my next question already, Adam, but I'll ask it anyway, and that is you talked about the money being put toward preparing other properties for sale. You mentioned agency relocation. Is that the primary way that the money would be spent, or is there are there sometimes do you expect that there will be expenses involved in just preparing a piece of property for the market, cleaning it up or moving, you know, tearing down buildings that are not fit to, that shouldn't be resold, that kind of thing? It's definitely um, both, Francis, but, but the, the larger uh, parts of any project are really like moving the people out and getting some other space ready for them. That, though, though that's the big ticket cost and um, why we really need these proceeds from this first sale to help us in the future. And that's another reason why we pivoted to this, uh, to seeking a portfolio sale, even though uh, still enabling offers on individual properties, but we need to see these proceeds um, uh, so we can uh, work with agencies and, and, and generate the next round of recommendations because that is due to OMB in December of 2021. So we really don't even have that much time to prepare the second round of, uh, of recommendations. Uh, we have about 30 seconds left, Adam. Do you have a sense of how large that one will be or are you still sufficiently early enough in the evaluation process that there's not a way to tell yet? I, I don't want to speculate. There'll be some big ones and some small ones. I do want to give a shout out though to my uh, GSA colleagues. I would say it's always a challenge to do something unusual or unique in the federal government. And it takes a team of really committed people to do that. And we uh, we have that level of interest and collaboration 
So we're really excited about what this next year is going to bring. Adam, thanks very much for joining me. Appreciate the update. Thank you, Francis. Bye-bye. Up next, keeping track of the new L funds. Straight ahead on Government Matters, new choices in the thrift savings plan that could help or hinder your retirement. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. 62,000 federal employees now have money in the newest additions to the Thrift Savings Plan. That money represents more than $4.5 billion. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Kim, welcome back. These are the new L funds uh, that folks are moving money into. Who's moving the money? Is it the, is it, is it the TSP? Is it the participants? And what are the new funds? Uh, the new funds are new five-year L funds. So they now go out to uh, 2065. And the money that you're referencing, the new money is totally driven by participants. They are making those selections or if they're auto-enrolled um, participants, they're put wherever their uh, closest target date fund is. So if you're an 18-year-old in the uniform services, for example, you're auto-enrolled in the L2065 fund. Um, nerds like me that pay attention to this stuff should probably expect to see the money, especially in the longer-term L funds, increase over the years, shouldn't we, because of what you just alluded to? Absolutely. Um, yes. And what we have seen right now is with the L2060 fund, 2050 fund, um, because that's what people were being auto-enrolled in now, is the uptick. It's sort of a hockey stick um, up, in, and that was driven by the BRS auto-enrollees. So the auto-enrollment now, let's say, for example, so you mentioned an 18-year-old comes into government, they sign up for the military or whatever, and they're enrolled in the, they are automatically go in the L2065 fund. I'm 54. If I took a job for the government, would I be auto-enrolled in a plan w w that is commensurate to my age, or would you stick me in the 2065 just kind of by default? Oh, no. We, do, we look at your birth date, and we match that to whatever our ranges for that particular birth date. All right. Um, all this money that's coming in to those L funds, tell me how those L funds are structured inside there. And there's a reason that I asked that question that I'll explain after you tell me what an L fund looks like on the inside. Well, the L income fund, for example, is the one that's for people who are either drawing money now or expect to draw money in the next year or two. That one is heavily weighted toward the G and the F fund because they're less volatile. Um, and I don't have the percentage off the top of my head, but it's roughly 65%, 70% in the, uh, in the G and the F fund. And then there is some portion in equities to uh, mitigate against inflation risks and outliving your money, which of course no one wants to do. Mm -hmm. The L, L 2065, 60 and 55 all start at 99% equities. So 99% of the money in those funds is invested in the C, S and I funds. And the reason that I asked that question is because one of the most counterintuitive things I've ever heard was uh, when you first rolled the L funds out, was it I want to say it was like eight or 10 years ago. Um, uh, about 2010, around a little earlier than 2010. Yeah, around around 10 years ago. 
uh, I talked to somebody who said, yeah, these L funds are a great idea. I, I moved half of my money that was all in the G fund to one of the L funds. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense because you're all, if you're still half in the G fund, you're not really gaining the maximum benefit that you want to gain by being in the L fund in the first place. That's the reason that I, I am I'm curious to know what these look like under the hood. You move these L yeah, funds over time to change the investment mix to suit the person's age, right? Absolutely. What happens is every quarter they're rebalanced. So um, I'm in the L2030 fund and each quarter that rebalances and becomes slightly more conservative. And if I left my money in the L2030 fund at L in 2030, um, it would roll into the L income fund. And so at that point, the uh, asset allocation in the L2030 fund would mirror the L income fund. It would become closer and closer to the L income fund. Similarly, that long year outrange, it will stay at equity for quite some time, high equity. And all of this is on our website. You can go in and you can see, and there's actually a fun little dial where you can click it and you can watch the uh, the pie chart change as the, the time uh, elapses. So if you're bored or interested in, in more information, that's a good place to find it. Um, the dates on the income funds are intended to represent the dates that a participant would start to take the money out, not necessarily when that person would retire. So we learned a nice little secret about you, that you're going to uh, start taking your money out of your account when you turn 40. That's terrific, Kim. <laughs> you're very sweet. Very um, sweet. Uh, another stat that came out of this month's uh, board meeting, you have 6 million participants now in the TSP. For years, the number that's been in my head is 4 million participants in the TSP, both current and um, separated employees. Where'd the 2 million people come from? We haven't been at 4 million for a long time. Okay. Um, so I think you just, as we all do, you get a number stuck in your head and that's where you, you pin it. Uh, but we get roughly 250,000 new uh, BRS participants, uniform services. And, and we also get roughly 200,000 new feds each year. And, um, 65% of those people, when they separate from government, they leave their money in. So the, the pool is ever expanding. It's not that it what comes in goes out. Uh, and so, yeah, we hit six million last month, I believe. Kim Weaver of the TSP, great to see you as always. Thank you. Good to see you. Up next, the long and winding road to a defense policy bill. Straight ahead on Government Matters, where are the matches between the House and Senate, and where are the deal killers? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The path to sinking the House and Senate versions of the National Defense Authorization Act is becoming more clear. Both chambers pass their versions with big margins. Seamus Daniels is program manager and research associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Seamus, thanks very much for coming on. What's the big difference that you see between the two versions of these bills at this point? Francis, thanks for having me. Well, what stands out to me this year 
are there aren't too many major disagreements uh, or differences in terms of the House and Senate version of the NDAA, at least compared to last year. Uh, what we do see this year are that there are a number of similar prov provisions, but minor differences. So the major one, obviously, are the provisions in both bills renaming military bases honoring Confederate officers. So the House version requires that uh, it requires that the bases will be renamed within one year, and the Senate has a slightly longer timeline of three years. What struck me as much as what you're talking about is the overwhelming majorities with which both chambers pass these bills. If, if both chambers really seem to like their bills, and you say there were not too many major differences, strikes me this could be a fairly, I don't know if I should ever use the word easy on Capitol Hill, but this could potentially be an easy negotiation process and we could get a bill out before too terribly long. Is that reasonable for me to think that? Well, nothing is ever easy on Capitol Hill, as you point out. Uh, the major sticking point here is that President Trump has threatened to veto the NDAA if it includes the provisions that rename the military bases. And you raised the point that, you know, they've been passed with bipartisan support uh, and veto-proof majorities. But what we've seen in recent days is that SASC Chairman Jim Inhofe has actually come out and said that he wants to strip the base renaming provision from the, vinyl, from the final version of the bill. It's one thing to say he wants to do it, though, and it's another thing to actually get it to happen when these bills have passed with such huge majorities and the country seems to be moving in the direction that the country's moving, Seamus. What else is under the radar screen here? What stood out to you as noteworthy, maybe not controversial, but noteworthy, something that maybe is about to happen that you weren't expecting at the beginning of the process? Well, something that stands out to me is the creation of regionally focused funds uh, on the Pacific. And so both the House and the Senate version include these initiatives. The House version is the Indo-Pacific Reassurance Initiative, and the Senate version is the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. Now, these are based on the European Deterrence Initiative, which the Obama administration established in 2014 following the Russian invasion of Crimea. But what these funds do is that they focus directly on the Indo-Pacific region uh, and implementing the NDS. So these will be focusing on uh, logistics capabilities within the region, uh, dispersing our force structure and basing within the region, and also reassuring partners and allies. Is there anything that we should read into that as a result of the fact that that provision was in the House bill House is a Democratic majority. Uh, bill passed, as we've already covered, overwhelmingly. I think it was more than a 100-vote margin uh, in the House. Should that be any kind of an indicator as to what a potential Biden administration might think about the national defense strategy and continue uh, to pursue the national defense strategy when that so obviously focuses on the current national defense strategy uh, and, and its kind of its lean toward great power competition? I think any time a new administration comes into office, there's going to be uh, a focus or a refocus on strategic priorities. Um, but as we saw in the Obama administration with its pivot to Asia, focusing on China has been a, has been a major 
uh, bipartisan policy uh, for the past 10 years now. And so I wouldn't be surprised uh, if a Biden administration continues this focus on the Indo-Pacific region. Are there markers that you'll watch in the negotiations, whatever we're able to get out of those rooms as these negotiations happen over the next couple of weeks, Seamus? Are there things that you will note as far as whether the, th the process is going in a positive or a negative direction? Or is really the only potential deal killer you see, what you mentioned earlier about the Confederate bases, what, winds up the, what the language in the bill winds up being versus what President Trump has promised? I think the question of the Confederate bases is really going to pose the biggest threat uh, to this process. Um, but there are other differences between the two bills that I'm taking a look at. Uh, the House bill, for example, um, places limits on the administration's use of funds for military construction projects in the event of a national emergency. And what the House is trying to do here is limit uh, the president's authority to direct more funds towards a border wall. Uh, the House bill similarly limits the president's authority to withdraw troops uh, from Afghanistan. It places uh, certain limits that need to be kept there unless it matches certification from the Secretary of Defense. Uh, but the House bill also limits uh, the president's authority to withdraw troops from Germany and Europe, which we've seen him discuss uh, in the past months. Seamus Daniels of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.